Chapter 19 of Genesis is brutal. And I'm going to warn you now that if you weren't scandalized by what was read in the text, you very may we may well be scandalized by what I say. Because I'm going to focus in on four people from this chapter. One of them is only mentioned once, and that's Abraham in verse 27. The second is the Lord himself, who's mentioned four times in this chapter, verses 13, 16, 27, and 29. And the other two people I'm going to focus in on, excuse me, are Lot and his wife. Chapter 19 is, is told to us in such a manner that we are supposed to draw comparisons between it and chapter 18 of Genesis. Chapter 18 is that account of the communications between God and Abraham, with verse 1 there setting the stage. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, at the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. By contrast, when the two angels that the Lord sent to Sodom showed up, they found Lot sitting in the gate of that city. And historians tell us that the city gates were where the men of importance sat on a daily basis, doing business, giving advice, and even administering justice within that city. Also in both chapters were given the initial greetings by both men. In the case of Abraham, we're told, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door and met them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said, verses 2 through 5. And again, from today's chapter, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself to, with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast of, of baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Verses 2 and 3. Same sort of greeting between the two. But within those conversations, there are some marked differences. First of all, Abraham does not even presume upon his standing with the Lord. He doesn't even think that he has the right to serve the Lord. He says... If I have found favor in your sight, if I am worthy to serve you, then allow me to wash your feet and care for you. How does that jive with how we think of serving the Lord? And the Lord affirmed him. But in the case of Lot, the language is similar to that of Abraham. Only Lot, he never even doubted that he had the right to offer lodging and food to these men that he knew were from the Lord. And they did not affirm him. They had to be pressed to come into his house. And from the first few texts from today's verses, it's clear that Sodom was a bad place to live. That sexual perversion was rampant within these cities, verses 4 and 5. But before they lay down, the angels, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called the lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. <clears throat> now, you have may, you've may have heard that analogy before about the frog in the pot of boiling water, that if you tossed a frog into a pot of very hot water, that it would jump out and save its life. But if you put the same frog into a pot of room temperature water and then slowly bring it to boil, it's going to stay in that water until it gets so hot that you end up with frog soup. Now, I have to tell you, I've never actually tried that. But... The analogy works well in describing how Satan works in our lives. You see, a Christian man or woman would more often than not 
would refuse an openly immoral person if they were to offer themselves to them. And that will rarely ever happen. But instead, what happens is through the things that we take in in our eyes and in our ears, we are slowly boiled alive until our souls are seared to sin. We watch shows that flaunt sinful behavior and laugh at them. And we have, as a culture, been boiled alive. If you ever desire to see just how much this is true, all you have to do is do a search. Go find an old episode of I Love Lucy. Because that show pushed the boundaries of its morality in its day. It showed Lucy and Ricky in the bedroom together, fully dressed in separate beds. And that was pushing the grounds of morality in the 50s. Where are we today? The so-called sexual revolution of the 60s, it ripped the facade, and it was merely just a facade. It ripped the facade of morality off of our society and revealed very openly the immoral nature that permeates it. And we can recognize, and we need to recognize, just how much has been allowed to sear our souls. You see, in the church, in the church, the question concerning homosexuality being a sin or not is hotly debated within the church. Even though we have scripture that is very clear about it, Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with the male as with the woman. It's an abomination. That's an Old Testament scripture, though. That's not the New Testament scripture. I'm a New Testament Christian. Okay, well, what about the New Testament then? In the New Testament, God speaks about the world around us exactly as it is and what he thinks exactly about homosexuality. He tells us in Romans 1, Claiming to be wise, he became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion one for another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verses 22 through 27. So Christian, I have to ask you, how much hot water are you living in? How much of your soul are you being allowed to be seared by the sin that permeates this culture? Oh, we may not condone same-sex marriages, but do we live, do we call those who live in that lifestyle, do we call them anything less than how God sees them? Do we use just these nice, quaint phrases so that we're not offensive and soften the edge of sin? Do we say that a homosexual is gay? That the man and woman that are having sex with each other outside of marriage, do we say that they're just living together? Do we call drunkenness a disease? The willful use of drugs, a disease. Do we say that either of these things are an illness and not sin? Oh, we may be willing to stand against the alphabet soup people, say that this is sin. But are we willing to say the same thing about those that defile the sanctity of marriage by engaging in sex outside the God-given confines of marriage? What about the murder of the most innocent of people? Are we willing to call that a choice? 
Or do we just call it an abortion? As if it's not murder. And are, are we unwilling to confront those women and those doctors in the reality that they are murderers? But wait, are you saying, David, that we shouldn't try to be nice? That we shouldn't try to be caring, thoughtful to those people? I mean, isn't that how we're going to win their hearts and souls to Christ? Well, what did God say about that? To know what he thinks about this, all you have to do is to finish that chapter 1 of Romans and find out what he thinks about us desiring to be nice and not get along with those who defame his name. Beginning in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, we may not be doing these things, but do we approve them? Do we, by what we allow in our homes, what we overlook happening in our midst, are we not giving approval to them and fulfilling what God says about those who openly deny him? And here too, there's a comparison being made between Abraham and Lot. You see, Abraham would have nothing to do with Sodom. He wanted nothing from that city, and he wouldn't even live close to that city. Lot, on the other hand, first he moves close to that city, and then he moves into the city itself. And he lived there for a while. He probably married his wife there. But you may be thinking, at least it does seem from our chapter that Lot did try to protect these angels, these men, that he was trying to stand for righteousness there, as told to us in verses 6 through 11. Because Lot went out to the men at the entrance of the door and shut it after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, not to act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do whatever you want. Only don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against that man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Lot, he pleads with the men of Sodom, both young and old, meaning that their sin was so ingrained that this is multi-generational now, no longer even being thought of as anything other than normal. And Lot pleads with these men, and he calls them brothers. You see, he thinks, he thinks, because I've lived here for all these years, because I've gotten to know some folks here. I've made some money, and I have some stock in their market. He thought that he had sway over them, that his religion actually meant something to them. And don't think that this sort, this type of evangelism has stopped or gone away. You see, most Christians live by the mantra, preach Christ always, and use words if necessary a phrase that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Basically, what they're saying is that their discipleship making, it's, well, it's relational. See, I'm going to find common ground with the heathen. I'm going to go and hang out with them. I'm going to let them know that I'm just like they are. I'm going to share some laughs with them, maybe some stories with them, maybe even get into their fantasy football league. And every once in a while, 
when they are daring, they'll wear, wear a chosen shirt to evangelize the lost. And then they wonder up why, wonder why at the end of the day they're treated like Lot. Oh, and that phrase that attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, he never said that. And you are required to use words to preach the gospel. You must offend people with the truth. And it's clear from verse 8 that the concern coming from Lot was his reputation, not these men. They had come under his roof, and as a reputable host, he was charged with their safety and comfort, both of which were being threatened by the mob. But his daughters, on the other hand, they were not his guests. And anything that might happen to them, that wouldn't taint his reputation like an attack of guests would. But no getting around it. What Lot has just offered to these men is an unconscionable sin. And this, con this account is given us as a contrast to Abraham as well. Because this is not how a man of God would act. Abraham would never act in this manner. Or would he? You see, back in chapter 12, we're told of Abraham selling his wife, Sarai, for stuff and being okay with it because it saved his neck. He sold his wife as a sex slave. Lot offers his daughters. One was a bad husband. The other, a bad father. Both are sinners. And then the angels revealed to Lot why they had come to Sodom in verses 12 through 14. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons of laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else you have in this city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against it, its people, I'm sorry, the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So in verse 14, we're told of two unnamed men who were betrothed to the daughters of Lot. They had not yet consummated their marriage, but they were in fact already married to these women. The same women that Lot had just offered to this crowd of people as a sacrifice. Oh, and by the way, before you start thinking really highly of these two men, they were part of that mob of sexually charged men, as told to us in verse 4. The men of the city, this, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded that house. And Christian, you who desire to be known as a nice person, sweet, moral, non-offensive, the fact that Lot would have agreed to allow these men to marry his daughters demonstrates the depth of his compromise because they would never lead his daughters in the Lord. They didn't even know the Lord, and this didn't seem to matter to Lot. And Christian, listen to how these men, who Lot had been kind to, ate burgers with, watched games with, but who had never challenged them in the reality of God and their eternal damnation. Listen to what they thought of the warning by Lot. They laughed at him. They thought he was joking. In fact, they thought that he was a joke. His relational evangelism and his desire, his desire to fit in with heathens has borne his bitter fruit. And it doesn't get any better. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But they lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. 
And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Lot just could not fathom that the Lord would actually, really destroy the wicked. He knew that these people were evil. But this was his home. I mean, this was his country. This, this is the people that he identified himself with. And the angels had to physically force him to leave and then gave him and his family two warnings. One, escape with your life, leave this place. And the second, don't look back. And what was the response by Lot? Was he overjoyed? Overjoyed that he and his family would be spared? Was he so overwhelmed by the mercy of God in saving him that he was happily would do anything that he was told to do? And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I can't escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, there's a city near, one I could flee to. It's just a little one. Let me escape there. It's, isn't it just a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to them, he being an angel, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zoar. Now, Zoar is in the same valley as Sodom. Is one of the five cities of that valley, but it was just a smaller city than Solar, than Sodom. Smaller in size, but equal in sin. And it was to there that Lot begged to go. You see, he couldn't fathom living like Abraham did. In a tent? Outside the comforts of a modern metropolitan area? Where am I going to eat at? There's no Starbucks there. So he just begged to go to a smaller version of the same sinful place. Which then brings us to verses 23 through 29. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord from heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst, and he overthrew when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. But it wasn't long until Lot could not live in Zoar. And we are told why he left there in verse 30. He was afraid to live there. We're never told what he was afraid of, why he was afraid to live there. Maybe the people in that city... Maybe they blamed him for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah since he was at least linked to the God that had destroyed those cities. Perhaps since he had had all of his wealth burnt up in Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps they weren't so accommodating to him anymore. And perhaps since he was new in this city, the men there had eyes for him. Whatever the reason, he was afraid to live there, and so he went to live in a cave with his two daughters. He didn't go to the Oaks of Mamre, where he knew Abraham was at. And then in verses 31 through 36, we're told of the natural outcome of the parenting and life of Lot. And parents, you need to understand the matter in which you live the manner in which you lead and direct your children matter because they will learn from you. They will learn your habits, your mannerisms. They will learn your ethics and your morality. And 
they will strive to exceed you in all these things, just as the daughters of Lot did in their sinful, twisted thinking. And now, now we can begin to think through the four people that I want to highlight today. But before we do that, I want to make sure you understand exactly why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? What did God deem those cities so wicked that he would destroy them as he did? We know of the sexual perversion that was rampant there. But is that it? Well, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is condemning the Jews concerning their apostasy against God. And beginning in chapter 16, verse 47, he says of them, Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, Within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you have and your daughters have done. And then God tells us exactly what brought about the destruction of all those in those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, verses 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Did you catch that? They were prideful and arrogant and selfish. Their sexual perversion that was evident and outward, those things that we find morally wrong, that was eclipsed by the sin within these people. Those sins that we allow to boil our souls alive with. And those outward sins, they were just an outward manifestation of an inward cancer. A cancer that was consuming them. And that cancer could be seen in how they viewed their wealth, their possessions, their ease, and their comfort. And this is what pushed them over the edge. And this was the sin that was so rampant that it would cause an outcry against those cities. And now we can begin to look at those four people. To do this, I'm going to use a New Testament scripture as a basis for dealing with all four of them. You're going to want to turn with me there because I want you to actually see that what I'm saying and what I read is scripture. Turn with me to 2 Peter Chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. 2 Peter 2. Peter says, <clears throat> For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under the punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So with that text in mind, let's begin with the wife of Lot. We don't know much about the wife of Lot. He must have married met and married her there in Sodom, had his children with her in Sodom. But as what is mentioned of her today is all the Bible ever tells us about her except for a warning that we're given in the New Testament by Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus said, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever keeps or loses his life will keep it. And in context, what Jesus was telling these people was that when he returns, when he returns, it will be just as it was in Sodom and Gomorrah. Just that evil and wicked both inward and outward. 
And the warning that he gives us is that we are to remember Lot's wife. That if we, any of us, are so enamored by the world, so comfortable in the world, even if we don't participate in the morally objectionable sins around us, like Lot's wife did not do that. But she was so consumed with the selfishness and the sin of the ease and the comfort. She had no place in the heavenly realm. Since this realm was her home. And this is the warning of Lot's wife. And it's given to us to think through our relationship with the Lord. Or you may say that you love the Lord. I love the Lord. I just love the Lord. I'm doing so good with the Lord. How's, how's your soul? It's so good with my soul. Really? Well, what's your relationship with the world like? Because that relationship, that demonstrates to a greater degree what your relationship with the Lord really is like. And if this world is your home, if this world is your, of your greatest concern, and you will know if this is your home, if this world is your home, by how much emphasis you place on it. If you get all anxious about the possibility of an economic downturn, possible food shortages, maybe there's election frauds going out there. If all these things consume you, this world may be your home. And it was in this context that Jesus told us to remember Lot's wife. Now let's look at Lot. And by way of him, Abraham as well. And as we've seen from this chapter, Lot was no Abraham. Oh, Abraham may have had his faults, and he did have a few. He was no way perfect. But when compared to Lot, well, he just seemed a lot better. But what then do we make of those Second Peter verses that I read earlier? Specifically, verses 7 and 8. If he, God, rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. How in the world can Peter say such a thing about Lot? I mean, is he just doing bad exegesis here? Is he trying to use this account from Genesis out of context in order to prove a point concerning God? I mean, take it on face value. Looking at the facts as they're given to us in the book of Genesis, there is nothing to show, nothing told to us to demonstrate that Lot was righteous. How can Peter call Lot righteous? Because of verse 16 from our text today. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him on the city. In the midst of that verse, we're told that it was the mercy of God being shown to him and the angels forcing him to leave. Thank you. And you're asking yourself, but what has that got to do with, the, with Lot being called righteous? Nothing. It wasn't the mercy that was shown to Lot and his family that has anything to do with how we know that Lot was righteous. But that last part of that verse that says that they brought him out of that city, this is the proof that he was righteous. Because look again at verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst to overflow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And we're told there that God destroyed the cities in the valley and that he remembered Abraham, which is why Lot was sent out. But don't misunderstand this verse. It's not saying that Lot was considered righteous because of his relationship with Abraham. That's not how the righteousness of God is imputed to anyone. So what is this verse saying then? Well, back in chapter 18, after God brings Abraham up to look over Sodom and tells him he's going to destroy all the cities of the valley, Abraham enters into this conversation with him concerning the absolute inability of God to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And the seminal verse there in that conversation is verse 25, where we, we hear him say, Abraham to God, 
Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And Abraham was not pleading to save Lot based on him being part of Abraham's family. Lot was not Abraham's concern here. His concern was for the honor and for the glory of God alone. He knew that God is just. And at the same time, the justifier of those that deserve the wages of their sins to be poured out on them. Saints, we need to allow Scripture to course correct our theology. Because Lot was righteous for the same reason that Abraham was. Because he had the righteousness of God imputed to him. And that is the only way that anyone could ever be called righteous. Ever. And you're thinking, but wait a minute. How can this be? How can Lot be righteous? Nothing, nothing in his life points to this as truth. I mean, look at all the evil that he did. Nothing in his life seemed to be pointing to the fact that he was righteous. It must have been a deathbed confession. That's what it was. That's how Peter knew. You see, we desire to use Lot as an example of what not to do, how not to live, of how a person who can claim to be saved but is not how they live. After all, didn't Jesus admonish us, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves? You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits, Matthew 7, 15 through 20. And if I'm being honest with myself, there is nothing in the life of Lot but thorns and thistles. No fruit there whatsoever. So how can God call this man righteous? Because there's nothing in his life that pointed to him being righteous. He must have come to Christ later, right? Only Peter said that his righteous soul was vexed while he lived in Sodom, not after. So how in the world are we supposed to reconcile these things? How are we supposed to be able to make flannelgrams concerning God? How are we supposed to be able to, be able to have clearly defined rules about what we can eat? how we can live, what we must drink and what we cannot drink. How are we supposed to tell if a person is righteous or not? Is this not the point of the Bible? To give us a list so that we can feel good about ourselves? And this brings me to the last person from this chapter today, God. What we are supposed to see, what we are supposed to glean from all of this is that God alone is the sovereign over his salvation. And our actions have nothing to do with our standing with him. I want to restate that because I want you to hear this. Our actions prior to salvation, in salvation, have nothing to do with our standing with God. Nothing. But they do have everything to do with how we view God, how big he is in our life. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And we're like, yep, we understand that. Not as a result of works, okay, got that, so that no one may boast, right there with you. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the truth is that every one of us, every one, we all prove that we don't get God by how we interpret that verse. 
We think that because we are in the word, because we joined a solid church, because we keep ourselves from the sin of the world, it's because of these actions. These are the actions that prove that we are saved. And these are the things that mark us, stamp us as Christian. We do not see them as merely the mercy of God on us. That we are doing nothing more than just walking in the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. We, we think that we are plowing the way. That we, on our own, are producing evidence of salvation in our lives. If God was a box crusher in chapter 18, and he was, then in chapter 19, he takes all those boxes that we've ever made for him and not just crushes them. He, then he rips them to shreds and casts them on the wind to be gone forever. You see, it's not just that Lot was considered righteous that destroys our God box. It's our understanding of how God acts. Because we know that God is holy and perfect. He created the entire universe perfect. And only those that are perfect can be in his presence since he is holy. And this is the law of God. Meaning that perfection has to be the standard. It can be nothing other than that. And for this reason, the justice and righteousness of God has to be poured out on those who do not keep God's perfect standard not keeping his perfect standard, not loving him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul. That is sin. And sin is a crime against God. And justice demands the penalty of death and separation from him, as we read in those Roman 1 verses earlier. And again, we think that we understand God. We think that we get his justice and wrath. We think that we can say, God will always do this, and he will never do that. The first time that we hear God mentioned in our chapter today is verse 13, when the angels tell the lot about the mission that they've been sent on. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. They were coming to destroy, and it was God who was going to do it. And you may be thinking, but what about all those innocent babies? What about the little old ladies? What about the toddlers? God surely wouldn't destroy them, would he? What about all the, the puppies, the kittens, the small, cute, fuzzy little animals in, a, in the cities? He wouldn't destroy them, would he? Yes, he would. And yes, he did. And many of us sitting here in this room would never get uncomfortable about that truth. But then, the second time that we hear the Lord mentioned in this chapter is in verse 16, when we are told that it was in his mercy that Lot and his family was saved, that they should flee to the hills, to perhaps the very hills that Abraham stood on overlooking the valley. But Lot begged to go into Zoar instead, and he's given permission to do so. And you're thinking, and? Do you got a point here, David? Zoar was just as evil, just as wicked, and just as deserving of the wrath of God as Sodom and Gomorrah. And God did not give it the justice that it deserved. He didn't treat the, the residents of Zoar the same way that he did the residents of Sodom. His justice was not dished out in the same manner, in the same way as it was in Sodom. He allowed a righteous man to enter into their midst and did not destroy them because of this. And this makes no sense in our one plus one equals two understanding of God. And God is not concerned about being easy to describe, easy for you to define. He is God, and he is just, and he is the justifier. And the point of the Bible is not us. It's not Lot. It's not Abraham or his wife. 
It's not about the people written in it. None of us are the point of it. God is. Remember, remember Genesis 1.1. If you get that verse wrong, you're going to get the entire Bible wrong. And we need to be very often have our minds and our hearts and our souls course corrected by that verse. In the beginning, God. This Bible, this is a gift from a very benevolent and holy God to his created and then recreated children concerning him. And we, like Abraham, because we have been regenerated and made righteous in him, we, like Abraham, are charged with telling others about God, charged with knowing the righteousness of God and the justice of God and living according to these standards. And we, like Abraham, are going to be forced to admit that concerning God, I don't know. Lot was saved. He was righteous in the only way that any human can ever be righteous, in Christ. And Zor was not destroyed, even though it was just as wicked as Sodom. And Lot's wives and daughters were granted mercy, but not grace. And Lot, Lot walked in every good work that God had created for him before he was ever born. Let that sink in. The life of Lot is meant to be a, a scary story, a cautionary tale, because he was given partial payment for his sin here in the world. He had his wife killed before his eyes. He had his daughters act in a most shameful manner because of his bad parenting and bad leadership and bad choices that he made. We, we Christians, we are meant to read the account of Lot with fear and trembling, not judgment. We are meant to read this knowing that we can make the same choices. And the only reason we don't is because God has deemed that we have righteous, good works to walk in. We need to understand that this could be the life that the Lord has for us. That he has not prepared very many good works for us to walk in. And this should cause you to fall on your knees and beg God to draw you closer to him as you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We should strive to enter into the rest of God. This is where safety is, and this is where you will gain knowledge of the holy. And we are given this account, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah and the account of the righteous man that lived in them to cause us at the God, to wonder at that God, the one who is just, who is the justifier of all that have faith in Jesus Christ. We must, at the end of the day, we must allow the Lord to bring us to this conclusion. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But the transgressor stumbles them in them. Hosea 14.9 We as Christians are meant to have eyes only for the Lord. We are meant to wonder at any good works that we do. Not because we are doing them, but because God has given them to us. We are to wonder at the God knowing that he not only just gave us salvation, but he gave us these good works to, to actually walk in. And they are a gift from God to us. You do not choose to not be a heroin addict or to prostitute yourself. You don't choose that. You think that you do. 
And it's because we have such small view of God. We are to wonder at the gift that this salvation is. And we are to wonder at the gift that this word is. And then wonder at the desire that we are given to read this. Wonder at the ability to even love God. We didn't do that. And the glory in the God that would give all these gifts to us. And to never wonder or worry about what others are doing. Because you're never going to have to answer for anyone else's walk with the Lord. Others, others should not be your primary concern. Even when you are ministering to them. Which is why you should never preach the gospel to people for people. The Lord always must be your focus. He alone. Because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the conclusion to all of this is this. God is not easy. He does not fit into our boxes. And he's not going to act the way that you want him to. But he is holy. And he is just. And he is loving. And at the end of the age, he will judge rightly. And until that day, be amazed that you are called righteous. Because you, me, none of us, none of us would have walked any different than Lot did. had it not been for the good works that God had prepared for us to walk in. Saints, look to Jesus. Don't look at men. Look, you can look at them and be amazed that he would save any, but do so only as a cursory glance. Focus in on God, on your Lord, because there is safety, there is security. And there, there is where your righteousness is found. Not here. Let's pray.